Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirsch. Today's episode, Sean, Chris, and I discuss the rise and fall of disco, its relationship to race and sexuality in America, and what its reemergence in pop music means for culture at large. Hey, Sean. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, y'all. So, we are back in music this week for an episode that... Sean, you wanted to talk about this yes. idea in particular. I am excited because this is a topic that I admittedly know little to nothing about mm, and have likewise. my own. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> for our own reasons, I'm sure. And it was really neat to have an excuse to sort of dig into it and also become aware of like a resurgence that I didn't know was happening. So Sean, would you like to introduce our audience to this week's topic? Absolutely. So this week, we're going to be talking about disco. Um, And the reason I picked it was because we're in Black History Month, and it is of one of many American music genres that are basically you have to thank Black and queer artists for. So let's, let's kind of pick up that piece of history. It's been buzzing around my mind since last summer when a bunch of major artists released disco albums, but it like it got pushed back in my mind, not going to lie, for, because RuPaul's Drag Race recently did like a really shoddy discomentary episode. And I think it's something worth talking about because I'm surprised how many queers around our age are just kind of unaware of it beyond a vague aesthetic and a vague arm wave. So I think it's something to just contextualize, because it's something that we all kind of know, we all kind of get a reference to, but like, why? Or like, what's the history behind it? So like, let's let's dive into it a little bit. And I guess the first thing I want to posit is, what is kind of your first impression of what's the first thing you think of when you think of disco well for me the first thing that i think of is uh saturday night fever which i've never seen for the record Mm. but i know of it and i know that that is like one of the things that helped launch john travolta's career and i know through researching some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today that that was a major catalyst for the popularity of disco mm-hmm. in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that image comes to mind of John Travolta in the white bell-bottom tuxedo doing the iconic pose. I think my parents had the soundtrack to that on vinyl when I was a kid. My mom had a crush on John Travolta <laughs> in that era. I also think of the Bee Gees because mm-hmm. every photograph I've ever seen of the Bee Gees has been utterly terrifying. And they are sort of <laughs> the face of disco for me. Yeah, and, and this, like, that weird vacant-eyed smile that they all did. When I was researching, I came across one. Um, I think it's on the Wiki- Wikipedia page of the three of them stacked up holding, a, a like, a number one. <laughs> Just like porcelain dolls. But, like, that band has been sort of cemented it's it's hard to get around them sometimes in my brain. And right, that's interesting. And in many ways, I think also the Bee Gees is kind of like my first cultural touch point for disco, but they're approximately the whitest group of men in curly hair you could ever think of. Especially like really lazy, quick background on disco. It comes from the late 60s kind of as a as a counterculture resurgence against rock that was kind of dominating the music scene at that time. And it comes from all these dance clubs that are undeniably for people of color and especially for queer people. Like I I have never heard about that many like gay bars just popping up underground everywhere, which must've been fun and interesting. So I, but I mean, isn't that a tale as old as time with American music that, Black people create it, and then white people get famous and rich off of it. It was really interesting to me realizing how many crossroads it was mm-hmm. at. From what I understand, it sort of morphs out of Motown in a lot of ways and out yes. of the R&B music of the 1960s, and, and, and also out of jazz and is sort of born in these dance clubs. And 
it is also riding the wave that so much culture is at that time, right? It's, it is sort of coming off of the crest of hippie rock and yep. out of folk music. And so I feel like, and maybe this is also part of why white people jump to it as well. Like it came at a time when so many other things were sort of either running their course or there was a real opening for something new. And on top of that, you have this sexual revolution and this Mm -hmm. massive burgeoning counterculture and the drug culture and all of it just creates this sort of perfect storm for a genre like disco to burst into the scene and, and kind of take over for everybody. Absolutely. And that, that like also like, right. kind of magically touches on everything that gets quickly associated with disco where it's really sexual. Like there's a lot of music besides the Bee Gees, which is wholly rather clinical and milk toast is the nice way to put it. It's so sexual. I remember like my conception of Diana Ross as a young kid was lead singer, of the Supremes kind of boring. And then I heard some of her disco tracks and I'm like, so she's just moaning for six minutes. Um, <laughs> okay. This, this mom, are you, are you sure it's okay that we listen to this <laughs> and drug culture quaaludes, which I'm still not sure what they are, but apparently everyone did them. <laughs> it's a, a depressant of some kind as somebody who's, very much not up on their drugs. They, they were very much out of vogue by the time we all came around. So Yeah. I'm only familiar with Quaaludes through uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Right. We're, he just does them and, you know, he seems to be having a lot of fun-ish. An interesting combination of Quaaludes and cocaine, though. As the two, up and down like, and all around. Mix it in with some alcohol and you have the clubs of the 1970s. And it's interesting that, you know, we talk about this being born of a lot of the what was happening in the 60s. You know, we had the drug culture of the 1960s and hippie rock transforming and morphing into other elements of the musical industry. But then we also take this drug culture that uh, was so prominent in so many facets of music that then we also see it morphing and changing alongside the music that are is so closely tied together. That's something I didn't even really consider. Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think like you mentioned earlier, Chris, Saturday Night Fever, which came out in 77. So I think disco had been around, I, I'm assuming like no one can exactly kind of place it, but right, the 70s, we loosely associate with disco. But right, I think that and Studio 54 with, I don't, I don't know if either of you are, familiar with ish are like two big cultural milestones, especially involving celebrities, which kind of helped disco kind of become larger than life than Mm -hmm. more than anything. Are you familiar with studio 54? I just know that by name and some of like the cultural associations made with it, like allusions uh, made to it in films. Like when I think of studio 54, I think of Austin powers, (laughs) which I, I think is right. It's, to meet from what I know, like the most famous nightclub of that the discotheque 70s scene. And it was particularly famous because it was very exclusive. And it's you were judged on how hot you looked or like how fabulous your outfit was before you were allowed in. And mm. it was a haunting ground for a lot of celebrities and stories of naked people, sex everywhere, people riding in on horses. So it I think the combination of John Travolta dancing like that. And then people hearing about all their favorite celebrities getting to go into this magical club kind of helps disco become larger than life. It's really interesting to me how, you know, disco is sort of the, or has been for, I think, much of our lives, this sort of like punchline, right? It Mm -hmm. it is the example of over-the-top pop music, right? It It is the quintessential music genre for that. But in so many ways it is just obviously a a continuation of what rock had been for the decade before it, right? Just this like ultimate debauchery, but also a very social thing, right? Disco is kind of, I feel like one of the last really major musical movements where the focus was the scene, right? The experience of hearing the music in its context. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, whereas 
the punk scene and the the rock and rock revivals that followed were based around live shows. It was much more a singular sort of experience, right? You went there and you you were the hero of your own story with a hundred other people or a thousand other people. Whereas disco was very much this social sort of experiment in the way that like Woodstock had been and in the way that like folk in the 1960s had been where it was just this obvious sort of continuation of that, of like, you know, the, the difference being that it was popular music too. And it had the backing of record labels, which rock had in the, in the sixties as well, but because it's sold, right. Maybe right. not all that happily. And that, I think that sense of community is really important for in history over and over again for queer and people of color, just like, you know, you can find safety and family and numbers and develop communities and spaces that you don't have to worry about being ostracized in a dangerous way. And all of these lovely, great things about disco <laughs> kind of get shat upon thanks to baseball. Fuck sports. Oh my God. <laughs> Shall we talk about Disco Demolition Night? Yeah. Let's let's go there. Um, it is a great story. And it's one that I wasn't familiar with until we brought it up. But I'm not surprised. Right. That right. The white straight patriarchy that, you know, has dominated the United States for so long is totally capable of doing something like this. And it I had mentioned this t- uh, to y'all before we started recording, it's eerie how much the sentiments that we saw in Chicago in 1979 remind me of some of the things that we're still dealing with today. Right. But this one, they felt like they could, it feels, you know, we can't speak for anyone, but it feels like for a certain conservative white base, they feel like they can kind of turn their attentions and channel their fears about, queer people about people of color especially black people and black queer people towards disco because that seemed like where they all were and quick history lesson this is just the stupidest event ever so it's at (laughs) an mlb it's at a baseball game between the white Sox and the tigers i guess sports 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 something but it's because the white Sox had like a lackluster season and hypothetically lackluster ticket sales they Engage with the Chicago shock jock, and he's like, let's just fuck up disco vinyl records. And apparently when this happened at whatever break in between innings, I think that's the right sports term, the explosion inspired so many people that they fucked up the baseball field enough they had to forfeit the game. And right. not only that, but also after said explosion happened... The crowd came in and basically started a riot and police had to get involved. And mm-hmm. to this day, Steve Dahl, who was who was a shock jock, who was this radio personality that helped spearhead the death to disco movement, to this day he still kind of denies like the role that he played in facilitating this kind of strange mob mentality, but also he doesn't believe that he, it was racist or homophobic in any way. When you could literally see it boldened people, there's plenty of stories about how when DJs played disco songs and got booed and threatened for it. And so it's like, it, it it's another example of, they said the quiet thing out loud mm-hmm. and the people to pay for it are the disco artists that are people of color. I think the BGs still survived after that. They still had number ones after all of that. So the collateral is always the most vulnerable groups. How fun. Right. And it, of course the BGs did because they had backing of record labels and, and all of that. It, it's interesting to me too, you know, in, in reading about the events happening around it, right. You, at the same time you have the punk scene, starting to happen Mm -hmm. and a lot of the the punk scene in the uk began in discotheques like that is those were the clubs where it was happening and although uk punk in particular became 
very anti-disco. In the beginning, there's some evidence that, especially like fans of the Sex Pistols, were fans of disco. And that's an interesting little point there too, because like the Sex Pistols were this commercial entity as well, like sort of formed to help sell a clothing brand. And there's a whole bunch of like complicated mess there. But it's it's like disco entered pop. It, it escaped its original purpose and of, of being a, a counterculture, a counterculture thing and Oops. ended up like just tumbling through the rest of the commercial counterculture and, and become that its is own enemy. scary yeah. for white people <laughs> because it involved not white people. <laughs> and they're like, Oh no, we can't have this. Yeah. We white people are very afraid of, <laughs> of our power being taken away from us. It, you know, if uh, if the past four years is any <laughs> indication of that. If the past 2,000 years is any <laughs> 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 Oh, no. It's interesting. I mean, I imagine it's one of those things where hindsight is ultimately the thing that determines whether or not a counterculture movement is good or bad. Um, it's maybe not something that you can really see in the moment, kind of mm-hmm. like Mason's saying, you know, being the heroes of our own stories on disco demolition night, it was in a way a sort of counterculture. It was people who were fighting against this hugely popular movement in the music industry, but it had the unintended repercussions of really harming communities of color queer communities and queer artists of color who saw this as their livelihood. And also those people in those marginalized groups who felt a sense of freedom that wasn't necessarily present in the completely white dominated rock music scene. Right. Mm-hmm. right. The, the countercultures that move in and sweep this out are countercultures that are not safe for the groups that, that disco was created by and mm-hmm. created to protect. Not to say that there weren't strong representations of, of black musicians in punk or even of queer musicians in punk, but it does not have the, especially then didn't have the safety that disco would have. And my question is, are you hating the music of disco or is it you're hating who it represents? And, you know, there's no actual answer to that. The answer could be both. The answer, Although, yes, there's the uh, article in The Guardian that you had sent us previously mm-hmm. uh, prior to recording this, uh, specifically talking with people of color who were there and noting that the people who attended this uh, demolition night weren't just destroying disco records. They were also destroying records and memorabilia of artists of color mm-hmm. or queer artists who w- didn't fit neatly into this box of quote unquote disco. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. And, and the artists of color that had success in disco who we still, and by we, I mean the larger whiter culture, you know, still celebrate we don't think about them as disco artists, you know, like Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, right? Like they, right. especially with Jackson, like we might talk about his disco era, but we don't think about him as a disco artist. He is something else, right? He is Michael Jackson. And and there's that level of like compartmentalization. Right. But you're also mentioning artists in a sense that are like so big right? They're almost quote unquote too big to fail. Like right. they have enough backing and resources and goodwill air quotes to kind of weather many storms. Right. <laughs> I mean, my, my awareness of it comes from a, a place of it being talked about in certain circles as like this celebratory thing, this thing mm-hmm. that disco was the epitome of mindless, soulless pop music and maybe this went too far, but, you know, here's this example of the destruction of the mindless, soulless machine that had taken over music. 
And it's also worth noting that things like this don't kill genres on their own, right? Like from a commercial standpoint, disco was beginning to fade and, you know, its, its popularity was, was disappearing for these other genres and these subcultures that were not going to be subcultures anymore very soon. So like it is this grand statement that is offensive and also totally unnecessary and kind of allowed for this mythos to be, to be built of like mm-hmm. disco being the mindless soulless pop music nonsense that then rock and roll came back and destroyed and, and sort of conquered. And isn't it funny? I, I would say rock and roll in this, in the definition that people of that age group want to say is a largely dead genre to me. Right. Well, these are boomers and this was sort of the last big boomer music movement. So, you know, was it the kids that came along and burned down or was it the boomers that burned down their own house? That could never happen. They would never do that. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, I'm curious to hear as a queer individual, did disco from, from your own sense and obviously, you know, your life exists some decades after this happened (laughs) in queer communities, did disco fade like it did in pop music or has there always been a strong undercurrent of it i think it changed forms and shapes but if you go to a gay bar or a gay nightclub i mean i I guess any nightclub plays a lot of dance music but i think it just morphed into different shapes and hit in different places Um, my favorite term when i think of like 90s and 2000s dance music is like Euro trash and mm-hmm. it's just a, a more Europe to me it just is a more European brand of disco music right and right. I think of voguing and house music and their inextricable ties together and that's something that survived and grew kind of kind of came before and it but it kind of grew and developed and weathered many storms so I think Communities of color and com- and queer people find a way to be resilient, but I'm sure it did put a stop to maybe feeling as safe or feeling as free as they previously did. Right. Well, and we should also note that disco didn't die in the same way in Europe as it did here. Yeah. Is that also thanks because they didn't have, first of all, they don't have baseball <laughs> and then <laughs> baseball promotions. It's all baseball's fault. Yeah. Stick to soccer. Football. (laughs) Too many hot dogs and you start doing strange violence. (laughs) Is that the answer to America's ends? Less hot dogs. One party is eating too many hot dogs and that's how how the last four years happened. (laughs) Duh, obviously. It's too many rejected pork byproducts. (laughs) (laughs) While... Disco definitely still has its fingerprints all over Europop and house music. Like it also helped become a huge part in the early hip hop movement as well, which, you know, we kind of see as distinctly different from the house and Europop of like the 90s and and 2000s. But it still comes from the same catalyst of disco and of course they've taken two completely different paths so in the same way disco does still live on in many forms whether this fucking dude wants to wants it to or not you know (laughs) and like ultimately you know i also feel like it's worth saying that uh steve doll like he got very famous after this. He got oh, his show gross. got syndicated and oh, he gross. has his own podcasting network and Oh, burn that one down. Yeah. So I mean, he's not suffering at all. And this wasn't just a, a anti-disco thing for him. It was a way to, you know, put a couple of extra zeros in his bank account. And you know, as a as a white man kind of building his success on the backs of marginalized people he did so in a truly truly great fashion it was capitalism all along yep 
to not only on their backs, but on their direct destruction or on the destruction yeah. of the thing that they had created, yeah. which is such a time and time again story. Yeah. God, we are terrible. Yep. So um, I'd like reparations. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put uh, put your Venmo or your Apple Pay in the description. <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm not joking. You can, you, can, you can pay me a dollar every time you feel guilty. I will gratefully accept it. <laughs> Those reparations will go to funding my podcast network. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So one other catalyst of uh, this episode was some of the things that you talked about in your mini podcast episode, Listen Now. Uh-huh. And you presented a couple of new artists, newer artists, who are trafficking in this sort of disco resurgence. And you mentioned at the top that 2020 was sort of this interesting year of a resurgence in the genre. So you want to talk a little bit to that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Disco has always threatened to come back. I can think as early as mid-2000s or like mid-late 2000s, terrible Maroon 5 songs that sound like disco songs. But I think the first big reintroduction was uh, Daft Punk's 2013 album that they did with um, Nile Rodgers from Chic, who is an actual legend from the disco times. I mean, yeah, who better to get than the, the original source for it? And, you know, Get Lucky was a song that we had all crammed into our minds and could not escape and won a million Grammys. <laughs> so, right, like a big cultural watershed moment. But funnily enough, it all kind of came together in 2020 with a bunch of pretty big releases of dance music during pandemic that were all dance albums that were very indebted or very directly so indebted to disco. Please note they are all white women. That's something we will discuss briefly. People such as Dua Lipa, Jesse Ware, Lady Gaga's release in many ways was referencing dance music in all sorts of ways. Rosin Murphy, Australian legend Kylie Minogue's whose album was literally named Disco and uh, you could say maybe a dude like The Weeknd's most recent album had hints or inflections of the 70s and 80s and kind of its relation to dance and disco music. And it sort of follows in some ways this resurgence of 70s and 80s music that has been happening for well over a decade, you know. Mm-hmm. And aesthetics. Right, yeah, and and across so many genres, like the psychedelica and garage rock revival of the 2000s, the early to mid-aughts, and then 2010s, and, and also like the sort of resurgence of house music and strings and EDM and mm-hmm. chill wave and techno and, and those sorts of things. So in some ways, like the resurgence of disco was in that sort of environment it feels almost inevitable. Right. But it's interesting to me that, as you pointed out, the artists that are being heralded, sort of being praised, with the exception of The Weeknd, are largely white people, which is not surprising in pop music. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me because this trend of sort of disco resurgence sort of reinforces the idea that disco was as white as we picture it, right? It brings back those ideas of John Travolta in his white tuxedo and of the Bee Gees and their terrifying eyes. And so I, I can't help but feel like there is something there. Absolutely. And I want to, and it's just a general commentary on, especially like, you know, you want to kind of loosely call it like the Instagram face and body and like beauty standards. And it's just, co-opting black aesthetics and ideas that have long been their aesthetics and ideas but now they're cool in music and fashion and and how in, in signifiers of cultural coolness and cultural currency so it it feels like just par for the course <laughs> cynically but right it's just what everyone does and it becomes it becomes a part of everything to the point maybe you don't even realize it if you're too young or, you know, you don't have enough of a big picture view and it just 
it just is. Uh, why can't Gen Z and the boomers get along if they're listening to the same music? <laughs> <laughs> it all circles around. Because sometimes some of the kids want more equal rights and and their college to be like not ridiculously expensive. But, you know, you just need to work harder. Yeah. There's that, and then all the boomers stop doing drugs, and so it just... <laughs> they just got boring and crotchety. <laughs> Go back they to Quaaludes. Got, Let's bring it back. They all got, uh, you know, cheap educations and 401ks, and they sold out. Losers. We are off track. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, <laughs> I made my fellow uh, podcast hosts do a little homework, because I kind of wanted to take a look at two songs almost as like a sub listening now episode in like, let's talk about these songs. And I think they're great, but like, I hope you also think they're great or why you don't think they're great. And maybe also kind of chart our general cultural understanding of disco and like where we see those inflections and influences in them. All right. So let's talk about my favorite single from Dua Lipa's most recent album, physical first impressions. Well, I told you earlier it's a banger. Yes. It's, 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 <laughs> it's rad as hell. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting cause it's not my, not my kind of music. It's not something that I would like actively seek out, mm-hmm. but it has so much vibrancy and just like such a great beat. And like, the the melody like just there's all these things about it that like come together and just make it just so fucking good and it's interesting because something that i was thinking about after listening to it was you know like we saw this movement of death to disco as if disco wasn't good mm-hmm. but with this resurgence and something like physical relying so heavily on the characteristics of disco. There can't really be an argument that disco is not good when it is still being referenced in a truly wonderful artistic manner and not as a means of caricature. Like it still has to, it has to mean that disco is a viable musical endeavor Mm-hmm. I love that. Thanks. You you said everything I need to say. It came from Chris. Check. <laughs> <laughs> Mason, what did you think? It's really great in that way that only pop music can be great. Like mm-hmm. it is beautifully mixed and structured and everything is just like the most perfectly built office building, right? Like yes. it's not super interesting to me just because it's not my cup of tea but i can see the appeal of it 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 is it is fun and it is so fun but it is also almost distracting when you listen to it and and you hear like that overwhelming disco reference because it's not it's not quite disco like you hear it but it's also like very much contemporary pop and that like sort of it builds this sort of tension for me as somebody approaching it from, from my position, you know, and, and my own listening background where it like sets up this tension for me where I'm like, what am I listening to? Like, where can I put my feet down? And I get that a lot. And when I listen to, to pop right now, because I feel like so much of pop is referential, there is that contemporary sort of sound that I associate with, I think early mid aughts. And it has, so it's been building on top of that. And that is built on everything before it but now we are getting this weird circular thing where it is starting to in an Ouroboros sort of way reference itself and reference its own history in a way that is sometimes super interesting and I think in the Dua Lipa track that you shared with us it is really interesting because Mm -hmm. it is almost aggressive in a way that I don't associate with disco right and it is loud and it is thumping and driving those aren't things that i associate with disco right but it's also like amazingly complicated in in ways that surprise me happy to hear you like it you also had no other choice um but to like it but what i love and mason kind of zeroed in on it it is like a pastiche of it's like a reference of a reference of a reference like when i think of the word physical in music i think of olivia newton john let's get physical 
right? The, the mm-hmm. weird, the weird '80s health craze, and like she does reference that in the marketing of it a little bit. But the sample beat it's kind of built on is it? It's sampling Madonna's "Hung Up," which is sort of her own 2008 like disco-ish song, which is directly sampling an ABBA song. So it is uh, it is an Olivia Newton-John reference to a Madonna sample of an ABBA song, which I guess you could put ABBA as disco as well. So right, it is just full circle coming around and then just souped up, cranked to 11 of what great 2020 pop is. Aggressive. Yeah, it, it, it is. You're talking about really important love. You're basically saying, let's fuck. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta get in there. <laughs> Why still got it, team? I feel like this is the tricky thing about pop music, right? Is that by design, it is referential and it is designed to sell. Like if we think about pop music as the purpose it serves, right? It is to be on the radio and it's to sell a lot of records and it is to be popular. A really good way to do that is to reference other things that are popular and and sort of cycle them. And Mm -hmm. that is sort of this double-edged sword for pop music, right? I've definitely said it myself in the past. Like a lot of the reason why people have problems with pop music is that it starts to sound the same if you are not versed in it and if you're not like living in it. And the reason is because it is pulling the same things out of, all you know this small pool of places and so i i wonder you know how much of that sort of feeds into this mythos of the mindless soulless sort of machine which is what quote unquote killed disco in the first place absolutely i do think like in context of what popular music is which you know an important reframing a lot of rap today i would consider pop especially with the blurring of the idea of singing versus rapping right it Mm -hmm. kind of marked like this kind of resurgence that we talked about of like unabashed dance music that had kind of fallen out of vogue right with the influx and the oversaturation of edm and dubstep and all of that that was a thing taylor swift referenced it i mean like that's a good barometer of like oh my god it's everywhere and in everything and then it went away very quickly, dubstep was just now in hindsight just feels like a little blip. A blip, right? But then everyone did. Then everyone did that tr- terrible tropical house thing, which you know was just like marimbas, but four on the four. Um, <laughs> and then we, and then we got into like Billy Eilish, which was kind of where the barometer was of like moody. Everyone is referencing indie and like what? What does that even mean? But everyone is trying to be indie with a specific kind of girly feminine voice, but it's very minimalist, very down temple, very emo. And then this is a reshift, but also right, as you've said, something not all too surprising that we've come back to as an idea and as a movement. So for contrast, I wanted to talk about another song that by Jesse Ware, who's one of my favorite singers, contemporary quote unquote adult pop music in the sense that she, A, was over the age of 21 when she became famous. She was <laughs> a regular grown adult when she became famous. Um, Ten years older than Dua Lipa. We should add almost exactly, I think. Just like centuries, right? Just ancient, comparatively. <laughs> and uh, just a, a quick spotlight of her. Uh, her very initial music was um, really like early 2010 electronic music which is like grime, but also a really big house revival kind of thing that she recontextualized herself in. But she's a really clean, kind of mature vocalist. And then she did a couple albums. She kind of stepped away from music because (laughs) it's really brutal, actually. She made an album about just like starting motherhood and like kind of coming to herself. And she played at Coachella at the same time as like some other rapper and the audience there was just dead and like three and a half people. And at that moment, she was like, I'm just going to quit music where she really wanted to. But then I don't know where everyone got this memo, but then she came back in 2020 with a, with a disco dance album. What did we think of the song? Remember where you are. 
Well, you're right. It did serve in contrast pretty greatly to uh, Dua Lipa's, but definitely still has a lot of kind of roots in not only disco, but also a lot of where disco comes from. Like the way it mm-hmm. starts was just that, that driving bass line and the the multiple vocalists all harmonizing with another. Like it reminds me a lot of this kind of like soul, like mm-hmm. slow funk kind of vibe. Like it reminds me of something that I could have heard as like background music in like Shaft or something like that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. has like that sensual quality that we had talked about in disco where, you know, it really, really focuses on like the rhythm section so much, but without it being like overbearing, it's not too fast. It doesn't have that driving element that the Dua Lipa song does, but it still touches on all these cornerstones that made disco what it was. Yeah. it This track felt much more like, disco to me right mm. where, where the Dua Lipa track felt like references to disco or a thing made in the shadows of disco not to say that it is or is not disco but the Jesse Ware track felt much much more like disco to me and and I think it was because of what you're saying Chris it's like it has that bass line and it has those harmonies and it has that dance sensibility before it was driven by drum machines and electronic sounds. Like it has, it, it has those contemporary pop elements, but it feels much more like it is going for a, for lack of a better word, a pure disco sound. Mm-hmm. And like, you can hear that in the rest of the album. If you ever get a chance to listen to it, where it, kind of just glides over the idea of disco and music and like lets you kind of sit in the beat. And I think one of like the magical things about disco is right. Like you can sometimes have this hypnotic quality where everything just kind of melds together and you, you kind of lose sense of like actively listening to the music, but that's kind of the point of disco, right? To get carried away on the dance floor. So I think it captures all of those things. I loved what you kind of zeroed in on Chris, because to me it is like a peak, beautiful example of like what Philly soul is, which is what I think of when I think of this specific like kind of subgenre of soul from the late 60s that is one of the feeders of disco. And so it's kind of great that a disco-ish album ends kind of acknowledging a forefather of disco. It's interesting to me that both of these these artists came out of London, you know, like yeah, they're based I didn't there. That. Because I don't think of London as a big dance scene when I think of Europe, and I am totally ignorant to this, and I could just be like putting my foot in my mouth right now. But like, it was surprising somehow that like that would be where these two people who are sort of leading this new wave would would be coming from. Yes and no. I think there are like little scenes of it. And I can think like the big house music rival in the early 2010s is thanks to the group Disclosure, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it's a brother duo. They are essentially really great producer DJs and they just pulled a lot of inevitably British artists to like sing vocals on their tracks. And it was really well, I'd say in the music scene, like really well received and kind of roundly enjoyed and then thereby copied dissolved, Xeroxed, especially in the UK scene of like, look at these British people are successful. Let's borrow it. Right. And like, let's kind of recontextualize it maybe as our sound. And I, I suppose that like contemporary R&B has a very strong contingency in Britain and, and yes, through Adele does. and Lily Allen and, and artists like that, many of whom are also white who sort of revive that so i guess as i like track that out this is a little bit less surprising again it is this history repeating itself of of things tumbling in a similar pattern over and over again right but it feels surprising right despite all of that despite all the patterns it's nevertheless it feels surprising kind of how all these things pop up in the way they do right and how much of that is us contextualizing it looking backwards but that's art, baby. Yeah, that's why we did it for you tonight. <laughs> so you brought up the sort of disco happening on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, and you connected the sort of disco resurgence as an important thing in, in the queer community. Do you want to talk a little bit 
to that? Yeah, I could say like most of these white ladies, which are all these white women that we are like talking about or have referenced are like what you would call gay friendly or gay centric music in the sense that they like think about the queer community and market towards the queer community, Mm -hmm. particularly the white queer community. It's almost like white gays also have a tendency to flatten things out and kind of decontextualize things. Shocking, right? (laughs) But for queer people, even today, even though in a broader sense, in like at least the US, like you can feel like it's okay to be a queer and not worried about being burned alive or like, you know, strapped to a fence. Gay bars are a really important cornerstone of queer culture um, for community for having sex, for watching shows like RuPaul's Drag Race. So music that directly appeals to us and would fit in perfectly on a playlist at a gay bar, it is queer culture. And there's also a lot of, you know, there's a long, 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 long history of especially gay men um, having diva worship and kind of idolizing women who are characterized as feminine yet very strong And part of that is the identification with struggle and moving past that. I wouldn't say that there's a lot of that with Dua Lipa, because, you know, she was just instantly successful and really beautiful, like, woe is you. But there's a lot of her using those kind of aesthetics in how she performs and what she wears and what she does. So I think that it it all kind of circles, like you said, just Ouroboros, it all circles back around and, like, you might not even understand even as as a queer now, if you don't understand the reason why you think her wearing that, like, seven pounds of feathers is fabulous, but you, like, recognize it as something fabulous, you might not understand the context of why it is. Does that kind of answer your question of, like, why for gay? Why disco gay? Yeah, it, it's just, it does, it also feels like it complicates it further, too, right? Because mm-hmm. it is... Suddenly, you have the sense of it anyway, or at least I do, that as soon as like pop music starts to put its hand into something, it starts to feel kind of icky, but that it feels, again, like a subculture beginning to be, you know, sort of monetized. Commodified, yeah. Commodified, Mm -hmm. yeah. And having conventionally attractive white women move into it and sort of capitalizing on that in the way that you're speaking to feels like a further sort of incitement of that very terrible thing that capitalism does, which is take everything that is beautiful and turn it into something to be consumed until destroyed. Yes, but it's so pretty. We are weak. (laughs) We must have it. Give us the shiny and the naked, please. Easily felled by some glitter and feathers. Right, and so then the scary question becomes what happens when that is a real cornerstone of the subculture and, and has very positive history and, and you know very in, important functions to it than when it turns into something that is just aesthetics and just commodity. Like, what does that mean for things moving forward? I mean, I think, which is, I think, kind of, this is perfect. It kind of is the impetus to this episode, or like why I wanted to talk about it. It's important to contextualize everything you're listening to. Remember that basically any homegrown American genre of music is almost 100% thanks to Black people, or some offshoot of music thanks to Black people, and that we need to, like, understand, respect, conceptualize that, and, like, Remember that when you, like, want to just remove that context or, like, only understand, especially, like, country music, which you could almost say is a white genre, but it comes from blues and soul, and, like, that's why it exists. So, is there ethical consumption under capitalism? debate that forever. But, like, thoughtful consumption of your media and understanding its context is, is just helpful to keep yourself in check. And a cornerstone to this podcast as well. <laughs> that if there's one thing that you take from every episode we do, it's that 
you don't get to consume culture of any kind without thinking about it and without thinking about your place in it. Whether you are a member of the subculture that it is a part of or that it celebrates, or if you are an outsider, you know, and, and coming in and sometimes you have to ask yourself if you are colonizing it in some way or if you are enabling that colonization or if you are benefiting from it or if whatever on and on and on you know there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure and as long as you are not actively harming someone you should be able to enjoy whatever you enjoy but that doesn't mean that you don't have some responsibility to to understand why you are enjoying it and and what your enjoyment of it means for yourself and for others Yes, I cannot wait till we can go to gay bars again, and I want to see all three of us dance to physical <laughs> on the dance floor. This has to happen. Dance is a strong word yes. for what my my body is capable of achieving. Moving in a vaguely rhythmic fashion. There we go. I don't even <laughs> think vaguely. No, yeah. a rhythmic no. fashion. A rhythmic fashion. Yes. Yeah, it's almost like a an avant garde sort of. It's a performance piece. We'll take it. You are making commentary on disco. You're doing anti-disco. I don't think you understand how just how white and how male your uh, two co-hosts are here, Sean. We'll find out soon enough. We are cliches. I I will speak for myself. I am a cliche in that department. (laughs) You can speak for me too. It's fine. (laughs) We can change this. We can rewrite the wheels of time. We can bring rhythm back to white people. I think. I hope. We can. We can. I am just not the harbinger. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?